Hi, I'm David Rothkopf, the CEO of the DSR Network and host of the Deep State Radio podcast. Here at DSR, we have always believed that in a world as complex, fast-moving, and full of risks as ours, we all need access to the best minds. That is why we have created the leading network for expert podcasts on the issues of the day you care about. We go in-depth on politics, the law, national security, foreign policy, intelligence, defense, climate, and new technologies with regular and special guests that are the leading voices in their fields. We also offer daily updates on global news, our DSR Daily, and on a key story of the day through our partnership with the New Republic. That is why over a million times a month, people like you choose to spend time with our hosts and guests. Membership is what supports this, and members get special benefits, including bonus content in virtually all of our podcasts. It's a big deal, and it's a good deal. Our monthly membership price is going to go up for the first time in our history on March 1st. So now is the time you can lock in our founder's rate of just $5 a month. To do so, go to the dsrnetwork.com and click on membership. It's that easy, but don't delay. Today's rates will only be available for a few more weeks. Join us, support us. Go to the dsrnetwork.com right now. Thank you. This is the Daily Blast from the New Republic, produced and presented by the DSR Network. I'm your host, Greg Sargent. Donald Trump has now made it official. He wants Republican National Committee Chair Ronna McDaniel out and a diehard Trump loyalist in. This week, Trump announced that he prefers someone else to chair the RNC, Michael Watley, the head of the North Carolina Republican Party. Among Republicans, what Trump wants, Trump gets. So McDaniel's days are numbered. Yet this is more than a story about party arcana and insider jockeying. It's about a much bigger phenomenon, the Trump-MAGA takeover of the GOP and the challenges the party faces as it nominates someone who faces multiple criminal indictments and legal fees climbing into the tens of millions of dollars. Here to discuss this is Mark Caputo, a reporter for The Bulwark, who wrote a great new piece called Trump's Game of Thrones, How Ronna McDaniel Survived So Long as RNC Chair. He is well-sourced among Republicans and can unravel the mysteries of GOP politics in the MAGA era. Game of Thrones is surely apt. Welcome, Mark. Thanks for having me, Greg. Good to see you. So it seems that the far right, led by figures like Steve Bannon, have been working to oust McDaniel for a very long time. They were unhappy with their handling of the primary schedule and other things. What's the beef there exactly? I mean, by and large, the, the Trump MAGA movement is an anti-establishment movement. So almost the minute you become the head of an establishment, like the RNC, you sort of can become a target. And the reality is, is Bannon didn't want Rana to be chair way back when in 2017, but he sort of went along with it. Uh, but over the years, the... They didn't blame Trump for a lot of the problems that the Republicans were having. They blamed the chair of the party. Now, that's part of the job of the party chair is you, you take the fire for the higher ups. 
But uh, what really caused a rift finally between Trump and Ronna McDaniel was the fact that as party chair, she sanctioned, uh, promoted and helped put on presidential primary debates. And, and for Trump, this was just a bridge too far. Yeah, I mean, it seems as if what they it seems as if what they were really angry about is that McDaniel was still trying to run the GOP as well an actual political party in the Trump era. That won't do, right? Correct. It's the party of Trump. I've quoted a bunch of people over time saying that, right? And the the issue that she had is she had to balance sort of two masters. On one hand, she had Trump, who, who can be charitably speaking mercurial. And then she had what they call the 168. That is the 168 voting members of the RNC, which are the 50 party chairs plus the six territorial party chairs. And then the RNC committee men and committee women, one from each uh, state or territory. Yeah. And so can you talk a little bit more about that? Um, what What is it? What is it? What's the challenge there in balancing the two masters? What do the two masters want? Well, in the case of the 168, I mean, each one of them is a party chair who has to advocate for not just the party uh, largely or the national party, but also their state party. And so they have various parochial interests. So some will want like a community center. The RNC was doing community centers that were open up, uh, in their state. And so in some cases, uh, Rana went along with this. And there were other people in the RNC are like, look, why are we opening up, you know, number one, these community centers cost money. And why are we doing it in these states that are not Swing states, right? They're not battleground states. We shouldn't be doing it. So that would be kind of one example of sort of a parochial interest they would have to meet. I mean, but by and large, the the larger problem that Rana had was uh, Trump and his expectations. And the other thing is, is all other party chairs at the RNC and maybe the DNC, I didn't check this out, have been in office for one, two, three years, maybe. She was there for seven. And over time, you're going to sort of wear out your welcome in politics with anybody. You know, just just get on Twitter. Right. <laughs> and then in addition to that, uh, the party started to be perceived as being more apart from the political leadership than many would want. In this case, when I say the political leadership, I mean, Trump and, you know, uh, eventually it became untenable. So so you report that the RNC's bad fundraising was ultimately a key thing that led Trump to start publicly abandoning her. Uh, is that what happened there? Bottom line, their cash on hand was just not as good as the Democrats. And the Democrats are doing very well in fundraising. In part, one of the reasons is because of Donald Trump. And then ironically for the Republicans, you had guys like Bannon and his War Room podcast, which is very popular, very influential uh, with uh, sort of the so-called America First movement, the MAGA movement, uh, who told people, look, don't be giving small dollar donations uh, to the RNC. It's not worth it. And then on the other side of the fundraising ledger, so to speak, or the, you know, the, the, the other pot of money usually comes from big institutional donors. Well, a lot of those big institutional donors don't really want to give to the RNC because they still don't like Trump. They don't think he's stable enough. Uh, some are upset still about the January 6th, uh, 2021 sacking of the Capitol by Donald Trump supporters as role in it. They don't want their money to be used for legal defense and on and on and on. So on one hand, Ronna McDaniel's RNC was starved of money from small dollar donors. And on the other, it was starved of money from the big dollar donors. It's a little difficult. Now, that yeah. said, those yeah. big dollar donors are probably going to be coming back home. I mean, these are, in the end, Republicans. And in the end, Donald Trump still delivers red meat to the Republicans. Yeah, this raises a question that I wanted to ask you. I mean, so, so Trump uh, has been gobbling up all the small dollar money with his other committees. 
And those in turn are dumping huge amounts of money into his legal fees. Meanwhile, as you say, uh, the big dollar donors are pumping cash into alternatives to Trump like Nikki Haley precisely because they're upset uh, with a, with the prospects of having a nominee facing a whole bunch of criminal indictments uh, and other matters too. Um, so I'm curious about one thing here. How do people like McDaniel and other RNC figures feel about Trump channeling immense amounts of party resources into dealing with his legal problems over sexual assault, insurrections, stealing state secrets, and the like? Does it get them angry? I mean, what do big donors think when they learn that this is where all this money is going? Do they do they say, why the hell am I sinking money into this party? Well, most of the money that Donald Trump has sunk into, I, I don't want to say most, but right now when he fundraises through what's called a Save America Joint Fundraising Committee, uh, these are small dollar donors. Basically, for every dollar raised, 10 cents, you know, 10% goes to his legal defense. And that's by and large small dollar donors. Now, there is some larger dollar yeah. donations that have sort of been mixed in there that's overflow from a super PAC and the like. But except for your more moderate and sort of more classically mainstream Republicans, there's a pretty widespread belief among Republicans that all of this stuff is lawfare, all of this stuff is unfair, and how dare the Democrats do it? They don't fault Trump for it. So, so, so RNC figures don't get pissed off when they read that all this money is going into his legal fees? Well, so far, uh, you know, about $2 million of RNC money before Trump had become the nominee was spent on his various legal stuff, right? Two million. And we didn't hear much complaining about it at the time. There are some who are starting to raise the issue of like, look, how much money are we going to wind up spending on this? Now, the Trump campaign says Trump's got it covered. It's through these other vehicles. Other people don't believe that. So this is sort of a wait and see question. It's one of those things that could really potentially boil over. Or, you know, you could have, theoretically, some very large dollar donors out there, uh, very conservative ones. I'm, I don't want to, I was going to speculate on some names, but I shouldn't. Who might just come in and just write a blank check for his legal defense? I could also see that as a possibility. Well, you actually said something very interesting there that I want to bear down on and try and get you to expand on. So there's, there is some grumbling. There's, there's, a, there's a sort of undercurrent of people saying, how much money are we going to end up spending on Trump's legal fees? Can you talk about that a little bit? Right. There's just concern that that's going to happen and that this could drain party resources. But again, you think, (laughs) yeah, I mean, you know, four (laughs) criminal cases is a lot and probably one of the more expensive cases to defend. Well, both the federal cases are are very expensive to defend because of the number of witnesses in the January 6th case. And in the documents case, that's just time consuming because of all the classified documents and the various issues related to what's called SEPA, the Classified Information Procedures Act, which govern how this stuff can be introduced in court. That's just a time-consuming grind of a process. And when you're talking about lawyers, you're talking about time, time is money. Yeah. Okay. So that's a big dynamic to keep an eye on, right? We all know Trump's legal problems are only going to get worse from here on out. More is going to have to go into legal fees that comes out of the party coffers. I think the figure reported was something like $50 million went from uh, fundraising committees to cover his legal fees last year. Isn't that right? I mean, this is going to become a real issue going forward, correct? It could be. Remember, a lot of it uh, that has been financed over the past few months has been from those small dollar donors. And 
if you have enough of them giving, you know, on one hand, and then if you have some angel investor types or angel donor types on the other, it could be covered. But yeah, it's certainly one of those big unanswered questions. I want to read one line from your piece. You report that, quote, even McDaniel's admirers say that she allowed the RNC to grow into too much of an independent body during Trump's presidency and beyond for Trump's liking. Too much of an independent body for Trump's liking. I mean, so if the party must be run purely as a vehicle for Trump, that makes it a lot harder for people, for party insiders to raise objections when they think Trump's people are doing things that might hurt Trump GOP chances, right? I mean, very much so. I, there's a cult like quality. Oh, great. Can you talk about that dynamic a bit, please? Yeah. I mean, you know, as we had said, our, I can't remember if it was here or before we went live, but, you know, this is Trump's party. And that is a, that is a, a frequently, a frequent refrain I'm hearing from people throughout. And, uh, you know, his dominance of the party was really sort of started to showcase in 2022. I mean, just months, less than a year, maybe a year after the January 6th attack on the Capitol. You know, Republicans across the country are, were crawling on their hands and knees to Mar-a-Lago begging for his endorsement. Just gives you an idea of how he's a, the center of gravity in the party. So when it comes to how he sort of controls the party structure, uh, you know, essentially, you're either on the Trump train or there are probably going to be problems in the way in which you conduct yourself or you can campaign. Now, the RNC is not some all-controlling, all-powerful vehicle. Let's just kind of be clear about that. But what it does do, especially for a presidential campaign, is give the, the ability of a candidate to defray some polling costs, events costs, advertising costs, and the like, and to put it on to the party. There's also these sort of joint fundraising or coordination uh, activities they can do under federal law that you can't do with a super PAC. So there's a real value add with the RNC. And what's really interesting is in 2020, when the party and the Trump campaign were in a very dysfunctional relationship, Rana McDaniel was the party chair. She wasn't even talking. They weren't even on speaking terms with the campaign manager at the time, Bill Stepien, because Stepien wanted them to spend right. money in a certain way. And the party said no. <laughs> and that was a problem. So that's really sort of the genesis of that of that beef there. And now that Trump is re once again the the likely nominee and reestablishing his dominance here, uh, you're you're not going to see that sort of resistance from the party to it. So what happens when uh, senior party members look at what Trump is, and his people are doing and say to themselves, Jesus, this is going to be a disaster for us? Can they can they be frank about it? I mean, if if the party has really become this kind of hijacked vehicle all for Trump, what happens when party members want to have serious discussions with Trump and his people about how things are going? Well, I assume that they don't. I mean, just to be clear, it's not like that stuff is common anyway in a party once you have a nominee. Like, how often do you hear DNC members? I mean, yeah, you got Phillips, right? out there, uh, you know, kind of nominally running against Joe Biden. But you, you usually just don't see that sort of breaking of ranks once the nomination is complete or essentially complete. But yes, there's just sort of this added dynamic where Trump's dominance of the party is going to further inhibit that. But let's be very frank and very clear. I mean, Republicans, by and large, are very scared of bucking Donald Trump and or his voters. I mean, that is still the base of the party. 
And if you're a politician and you want to remain a politician, you want to get elected again, and you don't want to get crosswise with your voters. Now, those who do usually wind up losing or they wind up leaving office. And you might be seeing that with some of the members of the House that are currently leaving right now or planning to leave uh, in the 2024 cycle. Yeah, I mean, it seems that that clearly that's going on. So so there was a sense toward the end of Trump's term in 2020 when he lost, and then even more so after January 6th, that Republicans who wanted to retain some respectability might have trouble working for Trump going forward. And yet, now that seems to have largely evaporated. Figures like Chris LaCivita, Trump's campaign manager, He's a fairly traditional longtime GOP operative, right? He was involved in swift boating John Kerry way back in 2004, and he worked for a firm founded by John McCain, for God's sake. Is the story here that in top Republican circles, working for Trump is no longer even remotely problematic in any way? What's happened here? I mean, the takeover is complete. It, it, it is complete. I mean, it only briefly disappeared. I mean, understand, you're talking to a guy who in November of 2021, I wrote the first VP sweepstake story for Donald Trump, okay? That was 10 months after January 6th. I saw the writing on the wall. So, um, and in fact, one of the people I featured rather prominently in my VP stakes for Donald Trump, I must brag, was Tim Scott. So, you know, I could see how those things are shaping up. And the reality is, is like, Donald Trump's the center of gravity of this party. It really still revolves around him. Uh, now, some people can point to some very fancy polling or basic polling showing that, oh, well, maybe it's not the case and this and that. But look, when it comes down to brass tacks and Donald Trump is on a ballot against other politicians, other Republicans, he wins. How do I know that? Because he has. We have now three races, well, technically four if we include the Virgin Islands, right, which had a caucus, which we're not covering where this has just been the case. Uh, and he's gotten more than 50% of the vote in each one of these contests. And he's probably going to get more than 60% of the vote or about 60% of the vote in South Carolina, which is where Nikki Haley is from, right? I mean, that's that's dominance. How long does Nikki Haley hang on? And what, 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 what happens with the, the big donors after South Carolina? I mean, you know, I, that's a great question. I don't understand. I understand why she's running if she's running to have fun and prove a point and say whatever the hell she wants, right? And she's empowered to do it. And I can understand why people are giving her money to do that. But I don't understand if they actually believe that she has a chance to be the nominee outside of them hoping that Donald Trump dies or is incapacitated. And when I say incapacitated, I'm not talking about jail because if Donald Trump is in jail, or in a prison cell, he's still going to win the Republican nomination. Let's talk a little bit about McDaniel's trajectory. As you report, she dropped the last name Romney because Trump hated Mitt Romney so much. Romney, of course, became the only GOP senator to vote to convict Trump on his first impeachment. And now, just recently, Mitt Romney was one of the few Republicans to criticize Trump for ordering Republicans to kill a border security compromise expressly because a deal might help the country and thus help Joe Biden. The rest of the GOP went along with Trump's demand almost entirely. And, and, and now, Ronna McDaniel, who has roots in the old GOP of Mitt Romney and, and his father, George Romney, is getting ousted even though she dropped the name because her loyalty still isn't good enough for Trump. I mean, that's just sort of almost a 
it's almost tragicomic in some sense. Yeah, but I think, you know, the totality of things, it's, it's not that she was necessarily perceived as disloyal by Trump. It just, it was just time for her to go. I mean, in Trump's eyes, like he had the far right, he had Bannon and Turning Point USA with Charlie Kirk. They occupy a certain amount of like media and headspace in the Republican Party. They were grousing about her. Uh, you had other politicians who just looked at the RNC money. They're like, it's not enough. Uh, and you had some leftovers from his 2020 campaign who are not in the current campaign, but are still in Trump's orbit, who had that bad memory of working with the Ronna McDaniel RNC. And you just start to put everything together, add seven years of time. And in the eyes of Trump, it was time for her to go. So what happens now? Well, I mean, the likeliest thing is that, as she said, after the South Carolina primary, she'll make an announcement then. And the likeliest thing is she'll announce she's going to step aside. Uh, that will technically trigger a vote. And Chris Lasavita and Susie Wiles, whom you recently referenced, and some of the other associates in the campaign are already whipping votes to replace Ronna McDaniel with uh, North Carolina GOP chair Michael Watley, uh, who Trump likes a lot. South Carolina GOP chair Drew McKissick has announced his intention to run, but most people think he's probably going to step aside because now it's, you know, as I've said before, it's Trump's party. After South Carolina, Trump will be the first non-incumbent ever to have won all of the early states, and it will be even more of his party, Amazing. and he more than likely is not, you know, McKissick will likely step aside, then, then Watley will be uh, officially voted in. Incidentally, Lara Trump, Donald Trump's a daughter-in-law, he, he endorsed as well to be a co-chair, and so she'll sort of be more of the public-facing uh, aspect of the RNC, the, the, the Trump RNC. She's a former, uh, yeah. she's a former TV personality as well, a former TV reporter. So you're going to probably see a lot more of her on Fox. I know how you love to watch Fox, Greg. Uh, so you'll you'll see yeah. that. Let me ask you this: You report that the RNC is significantly behind the Democratic National Committee when it comes to organizing in the key swing states, and as well as in fundraising. What does that look like? How bad is it for the RNC right now? What What are the specifics here? The last fundraising report really was just sort of a shocker for Republicans. Like, oh my God, like Biden's money is real. Now you don't see this written about enough or uh, a lot because it's harder to tease out, but all of the reporting, all of the anecdotal evidence uh, indicates that in the six major swing states, Democrats have really sort of put their shoulder to the wheel and are organizing and it's not just the party. The Democratic Party is, is sort of hydra-headed in that it has multiple uh, different sort of committees and groups that are sort of working in concert with each other. And they're, they're all beginning to sort of row in the same direction. I'm not saying that necessarily means that he's definitely going to win uh, President Biden. But, you know, they see Donald Trump, Democrats see Donald Trump, as you're probably aware, as just a mortal threat. And they're acting like it. And so uh, what... The Trump campaign wants to do is to sort of get its hands on the machinery, the pathways, and uh, the the infrastructure of the RNC to start to play catch up. Because, yeah, I mean it's February. We've got a, a few months, but it, this is this is going to be a real slog of a campaign. My guess, and I differ from uh, some other analysts, 
who think that this is going to be a high turnout election. I think there's a good chance this is going to be a low turnout election. Uh, you know, there are super majorities of Americans who don't want a Trump-Biden rematch. That suggests that people aren't really like enthusiastic about going to the polls over it. So that's going to put more pressure on both campaigns, their parties, their associated groups to turn out their base voters. Yeah. So what you're getting at there is that the dirty secret of politics in the Trump era is that Democrats are winning a whole lot of elections. We just saw that with the special election in in New York and in Pennsylvania, had one too just the other day. Um, it's it's really a remarkable thing. The Democratic Party is organizing like crazy and, and continues to do so. But what exactly are Republicans failing to do in that regard? This is what I want to try to get a, get a handle on. What's, ro- what's wrong with Republican organizing in the swing states right now? Well, I mean, the case of the Arizona GOP specifically and the Michigan GOP, those two parties are sort of in crisis. They have a lot of infighting. Uh, the Michigan Republican Party just sort of kicked out its chair, Kristen Paramo. She then denied that she was no longer being kicked out as chair. I mean, that makes just kind of basic organization very difficult. So that's sort of one thing. And the other thing is, is that when you turn over from a primary to a general election footing, it just takes a certain amount of time to ramp up. And there's just sort of less time to do that for the non-incumbent than there is for the incumbent. And, you know, you're presumably going to be seeing that from the Republicans starting, you know, very soon after South Carolina. But you didn't ask the question, but I mean, yeah, just to make very clear, uh, anyone who thinks that uh, the polling we see now, where it shows Donald Trump up two, three points, means that the election is essentially over is crazy. I mean, that's number one, that those are leads within the, the margin of error. You know, they say the most important you know, polls on election day, and it's all about turnout, right? These things are so dumb, but they're so true. And the Democrats are doing all the things they need to do to make sure they can turn out their vote. You know, an interesting thing that was circulating on social media the other day was, uh, or today, was AOC praising Joe Biden. You know, when you have a, a very progressive leader like that praising Joe Biden, I mean, it really means you want to talk about a party falling in line behind its leader. You really see that with Joe Biden. I mean, you're seeing it with Donald Trump, too. Yeah. You're really seeing it with Biden. Yeah. And let me tell you, you're going to see a lot of the young Democrats, the young, charismatic, energetic Democrats flooding the airwaves and social media with this kind of stuff going forward. That's all in the works right now. Um, Yeah. And and I think you get it. Really, the big story here is really that that in the Trump era, the Republican Party really is falling behind in the states and in, in national organizing in some basic sense. I think we see that in all these special elections. We saw it in the shock of, of the 2022 elections where Democrats dramatically outperformed relative to the fundamentals. And, and the irony of this all is that because Trump sucks up all the spotlight and energy, all this Democratic organizing and success kind of happens under the radar. Yeah, it happens, it happens under the radar until Election Day, right? So yeah, uh, yeah. now I can't say this is don't underestimate uh, the, the, the team of professionals that Donald Trump has assembled. He does have, absolutely. Told, you know, charitably speaking, he's a non-traditional candidate. He has very tra- a very traditional campaign structure uh, and, and these people know how to execute. 
and they they know what they need to do. Uh, it's not just Susie Wiles and Chris Lasavita. The one that everyone is, is really gushing about in the campaign is a young man named James Blair, who has a very good strategic mind and is kind of a field turnout guru. And, you know, everyone from the top of the campaign to your friend Roger Stone can't say enough good stuff about him. So they, they have guys like that and they have committed people. Yeah, and in fact, there is a flip side to the dynamic that I, I identified earlier in which Trump's craziness sucks up all the energy and it also has the effect of making people think that they're not running a competent campaign or are incapable of running one, whereas in fact, a whole bunch of professionals are getting in there and, and really trying to lay the groundwork to do just that. And so nobody should be complacent about this election on the Democratic side either, for sure. Uh, Mark Caputo, thank you so much for coming on with us. Greg, I appreciate it. It was great seeing you. You've been listening to The Daily Blast with me, your host, Greg Sargent. The Daily Blast is a New Republic podcast and is produced by Riley Fessler and the DSR Network.